think how often the simple apps on your phone are updated. So the idea that, oh, we're going to disintermediate banks completely and have all these processes done by things that don't have to be regulated, I think is just not realistic. I mean, look, I spent five years at the Treasury Department dealing with the wreckage of the financial crisis and then three more years implementing the Dodd-Frank changes at the CFTC. I would love to see more decentralization in the system. I agree that centralized entities often pose big risks, but I think we've got to recognize the realities here, recognize that, again, when they're performing similar functions, we need similar rules. Now, they should be customized to you know, encourage decentralization where we can. I'm all for that. And that's why I think you know, we do need a process that involves the industry. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. The fallout in crypto markets these past few months has shifted the dynamics around this industry's otherwise seemingly unresolvable regulation debate. It's fair to say that many crypto enthusiasts who really supported a more hands-off, laissez-faire regulatory environment are opening up, albeit some more slowly than others, to the idea that officially enforceable rules should be introduced to hold people and the services they provide to account. This is a natural outcome after seeing firms like Celsius and Voyager pour their customers' money into risky investments that, once they failed, imposed massive losses on these customers and generated contagion across the wider crypto ecosystem. But what to do about DeFi? In its purest form, decentralized finance means that investors' money is beholden to the predictable rules of code rather than to the whims of an investment manager. But how do you regulate code? And should you? This is not to say that investors in DeFi have not suffered losses. Before we even consider the loss of value from falling token prices, it's worth noting that $670 million in direct losses were suffered from hacks on Web3 projects. According to ImmuneFi, of which Mitchell Amador, one of today's guests, is the founder and CEO. In most of the cases tracked by ImmuneFi, there was no intentional theft or malice from project developers. The cause of the loss can usually be attributed to a flaw in the code and the lack of oversight that let the software get shipped in that form. But in others, the culprits can be pinpointed, if not always humanly identified. I'm talking about so-called rug pulls in which founders of new DeFi projects, sometimes using pseudonyms, boosted their project and its token and then cashed out before it was even tested in the wild. ImmuneFi offers solutions to some of these problems, if not all of them. It provides bug bounty programs and security services for Web3 companies. ImmuneFi's bug bounty programs incentivize developers to help secure projects by searching for, identifying, and offering fixes to vulnerabilities in different projects' code bases. It's a decentralized approach that's in keeping with the open source ethos of crypto and Web2. And maybe this is what Crypto Winter needs. Or do we have no choice but to invite in the strong arm of the law? Is there a hybrid solution in which regulators impose strict constraints on firms like Voyager, Celsius, and other members of the sector and allow DeFi projects to follow a more self-regulatory model? And if so, how do you draw a line between what's commonly called DeFi and what's called CeFi? To help us try to find that balance, we're pairing Mitchell Amador with Timothy Massad, a former chairman of the CFTC, the Community Futures Training Commission, who is currently a senior fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. I'm looking forward to the conversation with my co-host, Michael Casey. 
So Tim, let's start with you. Can you tell us, you know, what do you think about the Celsius as the three hours of the world and what do we do about them? Do we treat them like banks or possibly even FINRA regulated brokerages? What's your view? Sure. Well, you know, I, I look at Celsius and I think it was a bank. It's just it was an incompetent bank, a failed bank. Had it been regulated as a bank, a lot of what it did uh, would have been illegal. You know, stepping back in terms of your overall question about DeFi, I think the first thing is we got to recognize DeFi isn't nearly as decentralized as its promoters claim. And it's interesting now that we're we're sort of narrowing what even gets the label DeFi. Now we're pushing things that might have been called DeFi a year or two ago into the CeFi category. But, you know, there's often an entity or group of people who have some degree of access, control, influence, whether it's a corporate entity or a foundation or a small group that holds administrative keys or governance tokens or some other form of reasonably concentrated access. And I think we've got to recognize that. The second is same business, same function, same rules should apply. The fact that you're out in the crypto universe doesn't mean that you shouldn't comply with the law. And again, Celsius is a prime example of that. We saw what happened also with BlockFi and the SEC. I mean, frankly, any crypto lending platform should have been reading up on the law after what the SEC took its action against BlockFi. Third thing is, I think there is a role for the industry here. I, I would like to see, you know, almost a, a self-regulatory model. And Professor Hal Jackson at Harvard Law School and I are working on a paper that we helped publish soon on this. But it has to be self-regulation under the auspices of the SEC and the CFTC. It's not just the industry on its own, trade associations coming up with standards, because that doesn't really work. They're too lax. We do need the technical input of the industry. There are some difficult challenges to solve here. And, you know, I think some combination of self-regulation, but still applying our traditional principles that have served us so well, whether it's in the securities market or the bank market or whatever, to the types of activity that we've seen. A lot of people have gotten hurt in all this, and we need to have better standards. I want to get it back a little later to how to strike that balance between regulation and self-regulation about you know what we need to do about that. But before we do, Mitchell. Will you walk us through the Immunify report, the one that's showing $670 million in Web3 losses in the second quarter? It's up 50% from the first quarter, a very large number. Where does it come from? Uh, what's the cause of this and what can be done to protect investors? You know, fundamentally, the cause of it is DeFi is successful and that's going to attract attackers, right? You have this amazing technology that can transform the financial lives of people around the world. It's open, it's transparent, anybody can interact with it. You know, these are marvelous characteristics, but it's all just code. It's also the easiest money to steal in the history of mankind. And this is attracting more and more dangerous people, quite frankly. So you have an increase in the number of APTs, advanced persistent threats, aka professional hacker groups, often state funded, that are looking at places where they can make a buck. So the Lazarus Group in North Korea is, of course, very famous for this. They're well-known for robbing the bank, uh, the Central Bank of Bangladesh, and they're well-known for robbing a variety of crypto exchanges, and now they're moving into DeFi. You have other smaller operators and operations, you know, basically black market businesses that are getting into the activity of hacking. And then you just have more and more people who are getting desperate in an increasingly difficult economic situation who now have these very useful skills and can take the money. So... DeFi is kind of a victim of its own success. 
here and that the bigger it gets and the more value it creates for users and the more it attracts capital to deliver on its core value proposition, the more this you know, nascent uh, attacker industry kind of grows up around it, taking advantage of whatever weakness they can find. So, you know, I, I think that there's good argument to make the case that any project at its inception is going to be pretty fairly centralized. You've got an individual, a group of individuals who are kicking something off. They're, you know, they're building code. They're taking something through to launch. And then there is certainly differentiation in the pace at which there's a movement towards decentralization. Now, recognizing that we're not talking about platonic ideals, I think it's fair to say there's an argument that there's a certain you know, level of decentralization that is sufficiently different from a fully centralized system. And so my first question, I suppose, to, to you, Mitchell, is, you know, do you think that DeFi, again, defining these terms, you know, on a spectrum, should be treated differently from CeFi? And how do you distinguish the two? Is there a, something where you're like, you know, when you see it, but there's some attributes of decentralized DeFi that you think are particularly compelling or instructive? Sure. So number one, to answer the kind of value question there, I absolutely think that DeFi needs to be treated very differently from CeFi. And if you don't do so, you will basically destroy the underlying value proposition. The fundamental value that DeFi creates is you're putting this very sensitive business logic for handling value and you're putting it on a machine nobody directly owns and nobody controls. Okay. And you want to get the operation of that business logic, of that value creating activity to the point where nobody can control it, period. No single party can manipulate it. No single party can abuse it. That's the hope. But the process of developing an application like that is incredibly difficult. So let's just look, you know, something like Compound or a Uniswap or the like. It's going to take you years of product development. It's going to take you years of security work, quite frankly, to have the level of confidence, responsible confidence that you can now take off all the multi-sig, take off as much of the governance as you can, take off the fail-safes and the kill switches that make it safer to operate, to take these things off and say, okay, now this tool is so useful and so safe to use that we can afford to run it permissionlessly, all right? That's the hope. That's, and that is an incredible thing to offer the world. For example, something like Uniswap, an exchange that anybody can use anywhere and trust that it will safely and fairly transact. There's just nothing like that in the history of finance. But you, know, you need years to get to that point. That's it. If you try and block that and say, well, you're centralized at all, so you can't do it. Well, you're basically saying, we're not even going to give you the chance to develop that kind of application. And people will go elsewhere to do that because it's so useful. Someone will do it. And if you say, well, you know, maybe you, why don't you just launch it decentralized at the start? You're basically forcing founders to make fundamentally irresponsible security and I would say financial decisions. So you're really shooting yourself in the foot unless you allow for this movement from centralized vision and product development and the creation of all the best practices on the security side to gradual decentralization. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that it is an evolution. And I think to do it responsibly does take time. And I think what we're seeing is a variety of different methodologies from how you move from a centralized system over into something that is relatively more and more decentralized and kind of what leads. So, so Tim, I guess I'd push back a little bit on your, on your framing of this and say, I personally would not expect most systems to be at this stage in their development, you know, fully, I think, as you use as a decentralized. But I do think that if that is the path, there certainly should be some evidence that that is the path, you know, that a project is on. And I guess 
the question would be kind of what do you look for as those markers that there is something that is moving, you know, from decentralized? And then do you also agree there's a trigger moment perhaps where something is sufficiently decentralized, still on its journey, but it's maybe moved along the spectrum such that it ought to be treated differently from the exercise a project that is intended to remain centralized and is, you know, being codified as such. I'm not sure there's this binary moment where it becomes so decentralized, if you will, that from a regulatory standpoint, it's hands off. I guess I'm frankly skeptical that you can create a smart contract capable of executing complex financial services involving hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and that remains accurate and competitive and market relevant in a industry, in a world where we have constant changes in market conditions, constant new competitive factors, consumers' needs change. You know, there's always going to be tinkering. I mean, I mean, think how often the simple apps on your phone are updated. So the idea that, oh, we're going to disintermediate banks completely and have all these processes done by things that don't have to be regulated, I think is just not realistic. I mean, look, I spent five years at the Treasury Department dealing with the wreckage of the financial crisis and then three more years implementing the Dodd-Frank changes at the CFTC. I would love to see more decentralization in the system. I agree that centralized entities often pose big risks, but I think we've got to recognize the realities here, recognize that, again, when they're performing similar functions, we need similar rules. Now, they should be customized to you know, encourage decentralization where we can. I'm all for that. And that's why I think you know, we do need a process that involves the industry. Tim, is there any difference between the way that you would treat a DeFi company that had the intention of becoming decentralized, one that's started by software engineers, versus those services that explicitly custody the customer's assets, the kind of CeFi companies that have lost money in the latest round of leverage blowups? I haven't seen the example of a major lending platform or major exchange, crypto exchange, that's handling hundreds of millions of dollars in transactions where it's just someone pushed the software out there and now no one's touching it, no one's doing anything. I'm not aware of that example. I mean, again, we're now not calling everything we used to call DeFi, DeFi, like, you know, Celsius. Let's have rules that encourage responsible decentralization, peer-to-peer activity where it's possible. But, you know, these are just new forms of intermediaries in in a lot of cases. So maybe just walk us through, you know, what is your impression of what a a self-regulatory model might look like? And maybe Mitchell, we'll start with you. And then Tim, maybe come over to you to talk about uh, what you'd mentioned, this kind of symbiotic relationship, right, between maybe a self-regulated process and then, you know, something that's, that's initially led by the government or at least overseen in some fashion by the government. So maybe we'll start with you, Mitchell, just talk about this concept generally, and then over to you, Tim, to talk about your vision of how the two might coexist. So self-regulatory is, is kind of a, a big and sticky question because it touches every part of what crypto is today, uh, and it's impossibly broad. But looking at DeFi already, there are already elements of kind of self-regulatory activity. And we see this most especially on the security side. It's the implementation across the entirety of the space and across pretty much everybody's serious workflows, uh, a higher and higher bar for security workflows and security processes. For example, there's not a single serious project in the space that gets funding today that isn't getting audits early on. 
that isn't getting a bug bounty afterward, that isn't being pushed to either get some kind of monitoring solution up, to get some kind of recurring code review solution up, or to even get smart contract insurance for the users. These are all things becoming increasingly common, being pushed primarily by the users themselves, led by the lead investors who have the sophistication to understand what this technology and frankly, service provider stack should look like to safeguard their users and their own interests. It's being driven by the people who are themselves affected and who themselves know what solutions actually work. That's the most important piece. And if we wanted to increase the effectiveness of that, we would be pouring resources into industry working groups that are binding together investors who are ultimately investors, the people who control the cash flows. These are the parties that have the most leverage over anybody creating products in this space today and make them drive these common frameworks. This is exactly how audits came about in this space as a reaction to things in 2017. That's exactly how it came about and it worked great. We should do the same across the entirety of the security stack and eventually moving into a new stack for risk management. We are beginning to see the beginnings of that, right? With things like Kurtosis, with things like Gauntlet Network, with things like in-house risk assessment, Pushing these types of operational frameworks is ultimately what's going to do the job of preventing harm to users. And these are things that even if governments wanted to provide, they don't have the skills or the ability to do it, not even locally, never mind internationally. So yeah, that's where I would look to start. What's the practical workflow needs that get results? So Tim, what's your reaction to that? Uh, my definition of self-regulation, or at least the kind I'm calling for, is is much different. With all due respect to entities like Association for Digital Asset Markets or other trade groups that have, you know, claimed to have developed standards, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what we have done over almost the past hundred years in the securities markets, as well as over the past fifty or so years in the derivatives markets which is we have had self-regulatory organizations under the very tight supervision of the SEC and the CFTC. Those agencies have authority over membership, over the rules that these self-regulatory organizations develop. The SROs are responsible for enforcement actions and for disciplining members, and the SEC and CFTC can also oversee that process. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We developed this when we adopted the securities laws. And it's very interesting if you go back and look at the history. And again, I'm, I'm coming out uh, with Hal Jackson at Harvard Law School with a paper on this. We needed this because of how to regulate the over-the-counter market in securities. And yes, there were proposals that, oh, well, the industry can just do it on its own. But the then chairman of the SEC was William O. Douglas, who then went on, of course, to become a Supreme Court justice. And he said, no, 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 no. You've got to have a well-oiled shotgun for self-regulation to work, by which he meant the government has to be there overseeing this process. So what I would like to see is a self-regulatory organization under the joint auspices of the SEC and the CFTC. Because I think we do need industry input, but it's got to be matched with government oversight, government supervision, because a lot of people in the industry understand the technology, but frankly, they don't understand the rules. People often like to say, oh, we need regulatory clarity. Well, it's often that they don't want to understand what the rules are. They don't want to believe that these rules could apply to them. So you've got to have an industry involvement 
in a self-regulatory process that is tightly overseen by the government. What do you say to the people who would say that the 1933 Securities Act is out of touch with the entirely different framework with which this technology treats value and exchange in a, in a, in a very different framework? That it's a square peg jamming into a round hole. Well, I think there are challenges because of the fact that crypto assets cut across our regulatory categories. And, you know, that often happens. Regulation is often behind innovation. But let's think about the principles behind the security laws, investor protection, market integrity, transparency. We need all those things in the crypto market. And, you know, we may need to make some adjustments in terms of exactly how rules apply. But I think there's a lot we could do today under the laws that we have. I wouldn't want to see us rush to say, oh, crypto deserves an entirely different framework. I don't believe that's true. Yes, it deserves some adjustments, perhaps. But again, when you look at what Celsius was doing, what BlockFi did, a lot of the traditional principles that we use in the securities markets apply there. When you look at Coinbase, you know, the CFTC brought an action against Coinbase for wash trading. Now, it only has very limited authority over Coinbase. Wash trading is where you have, you know, people trading with themselves to pump up the volume, pump up the price. And we prohibit people from doing that on securities and derivatives exchanges. The ironic thing about this action was it wasn't that Coinbase had failed to prevent its customers from doing this. It was doing it itself. Now, I know that's a CFI example, but my point is, you know, the traditional principles that we've applied to protect investors and to ensure market integrity need to be applied to this industry, even if there are some changes in exactly how the rules apply. So I'm not entirely sure the facts of that particular case are documented officially. Nevertheless, I mean, I think your point is generally well taken, which is to say that there are certain kinds of activities that we've seen historically that have their manifestation in a new context. Now, that being said, I don't think most people in this industry would have called Celsius, would have given the moniker of DeFi to Celsius, quite frankly. I also think most people in the industry were not necessarily that surprised to see the outcome of that particular experiment. So I do think that what the industry is calling for is this ability to differentiate actors who are intentionally, you know, deliberately and meaningfully moving towards decentralization and those who are not. And so understanding what those differences are, and then also ways to differentiate and create more of an apples to apples comparison among different experiments so that those that might be engaging in what we understood to historically be unfair, inequitable, or just fraudulent activity can be quickly spotted and differentiated from those who are not engaged in activity, but also that there is clarity that, you know, the activities that have in the past been deemed uh, unworthy or antisocial, uh, similarly, you know, there are consequences of those actions in the new context and what that might look like. But Mitchell, I'd love to just get your reaction in general to the overview that Tim provided. And then I'm unfortunately going to have to move us to close, but Mitchell, over to you for a response. Well, it's, it's kind of tricky, right? Because on the one side, my personal opinion, there's a privileged role for the state to participate in cultivating and channeling this technology into a societally useful direction. I'm very partial to that viewpoint. And some of you know, what my colleague here describes sounds very appealing in that regard. On the flip side of that, the challenge is the Americans can't regulate 
with her existing centralized businesses at all effectively. They're incompetent at it. And secondarily, any regulations that they're going to apply to DeFi, they're going to take that shotgun, they're going to point it at the rest of the world. It's not about protecting users. It's not going to end up there. It's going to be a naked power grab. And I'm not excited about that. So like, I want the common sense approach where we, we do need to discipline and put personal restrictions on these founders in many cases to make sure they understand there are consequences to their actions and they cannot be cowboys with people's money. But on the flip side, I don't want the Americans telling us what to do because they are, they are the biggest cowboys of them all. Can I respond? Yeah. <laughs> Our securities seconds, markets, I think, are the strongest, strongest and deepest in the world in large part because of the framework we put in place. And our banks are stronger today, I think, because of the reforms post-financial crisis. Regulators make errors, but I do think we're better off with regulation. Well, so thank you both so much. I mean, my takeaway from this is, you know, there's a reason that this is so complicated and you've heard some of the reasons right here. Fundamentally, we can't even really agree as, as a society, as a you know, policymaking body, as an industry on what is decentralization, what is centralization, what rules of the road are where. We can't even really, we don't even have appropriate lexicon around what we're actually doing. Like, what is the activity that we're doing? Is it the same as other activities? Is it different? So I think you get a sense, hopefully all of you out there listening and viewing, of just the sheer complexity here and why I think there's so much activity around the world, not just in the, in the United States, but in Europe and Australia, and Singapore, you know, in uh, in this space. And certainly hope this has been a very uh, interesting conversation and appreciate it both gentlemen. Thank you so much, uh, Mitchell Amador and Timothy Massad. It's a pleasure to have you all here. And as always, uh, my co-host, Michael Casey, stay tuned next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Mitchell Amador and Timothy Massad. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adaby Levine. Our theme song is Shepherd. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, Thanks for listening.